All right, good morning. We're doing reconstruction this morning and uh, already said hi to everybody here in live, but want to say hey to those down the hall um, in Bland and Amped and down out at Roan County and down in Bearden, Mark and Nate Sullivan's down there. So we just were talking about you, Nate, uh, and the, you folks down at Bearden. We're excited for you, what's happening down there. I also want to tell you about one other thing that's going on. Uh, on Friday morning, we had a team of 10 uh, real early in the morning, get up and get on a plane, and they are now down in Mexico City, and they're serving with a ministry we partner with called El Pozo de Vida. They are a ministry to um, people who are in and have come out of the sex trafficking industry. It really is an industry in Mexico City, and really important work there, and, um, and they get to come alongside the folks in that ministry and we just want to pray for them this morning as they begin a week of, of serving down there. So would you join me as we pray for them? God, uh, thanks for the, the faces we see, um, people we know who you have sent out from, from here um, to go there, to go to Mexico City. And God, we, just, we know that you, you're with them. Your spirit is in them, God. We ask that you would give them energy as they serve, that you would empower them um, with your kind of love, that they'd be an encouragement to the staff there, um, that they'd be a light in the dark places that they enter, God, that they wouldn't, um, as they see hopelessness, God, that they would remember your hope and your love and your light and that they would carry you into those places, um, that, you'd, uh, that they'd get to see the work that you're doing, God, and that they'd get to be a part of it um, and that you'd get the glory uh, because of it, God. So bless them as they serve, God. Give them all that they need. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Good, good thing, um, good, good stuff going on down there. I hope you get to hear some stories from some of those folks, especially if you know them as they come back. Uh, this morning, like I said, we're going to be uh, in our series, Reconstruction. We're in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. We'll get there uh, in just a minute. As you know, if you've been with us, the book of Exodus covers one of literally one of the best stories in human history. People love it. They've been telling it for thousands of years. It's a story of people going from hopelessness to hope, from bondage to freedom, the love of God displayed over and over in supernatural ways. He's, like in this story, he's saving people from slavery, from Pharaoh, from death, from the sea, from starvation, and then he gives them a new identity, a new purpose, and that brings us to where we are today. Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, the best part of every story, the rules. <laughs> Yay, a list of rules. That's my favorite part of every story. That's, no, that's, that's nobody's favorite part of any story. That's what, that's what Exodus 20 is. In fact, it's not just Exodus 20. It actually goes on um, for, for four chapters here. It's a list of commands, a list of laws. Okay. We call this series Reconstruction because we're talking about doing some demo work in how we think about God so that our faith can re be rebuilt stronger than it was. That's what God is doing with Israel. That's what he needs to do in us. And for, for the Israelites, it, when we get to Exodus chapter 20 for the Israelites, the Ten Commandments are something new that God is giving to them through Moses. But for us, they're old news. It, the Ten Commandments, even if, you, even, if you, even if somebody never sets foot in a church in their life and never opens a Bible, they will bump into the Ten Commandments in this country somewhere. It just, it's, people, people know about it. It's old news. But I think that's why we need to look closely at them. And specifically, not just to look closely at the Ten Commandments, but look closely at what they are. 
That's what I think we need to see. Um, because we might think of them as a list of rules, something relatively uninteresting, maybe important, but not interesting. But actually, I think, you think, a list like this is beautiful, even if you don't realize it, even if you haven't thought the Ten Commandments are beautiful. I think you, that you actually, most of you have actually been brought to tears by the beauty of a list of rules. Um, because the Ten Commandments aren't just rules. They're actually more than that. They're what we'll call relational requirements. They aren't just rules, they're relational requirements. And you might just think, that sounds as boring as rules or as uninteresting. Um, they're agreed upon requirements that make a relationship work. That's what they are, agreed upon requirements that make a relationship work. And this is our big idea as we look at the Ten Commandments today, Exodus chapter 20, that faith is built on embracing God's relational requirements. We've got to do it. It's, it's our, our faith has to be built not on following a list of rules, but on embracing God's relational requirements. That might be a new phrase, but we all have relational requirements. Some of them are implied. Most of the time, they're just implied. But in the most important relationships, the most important requirements are spelled out. And like I said, I have literally seen hundreds of people brought to tears over the beauty of relational requirements called wedding vows. You know, you're a, um, you're a pastor, you stand in front of uh, people at weddings a lot of times, and you get to see everybody, okay? And you see the moments when they cry. And there's lots of different times in a wedding ceremony when people might cry. Bride comes down the aisle, somebody cries, you know, parents cry, maybe the groom cries, somebody starts crying then. At the very end, they're pronounced husband and wife, people cry. The number one place, I'm telling you, the number one place that a bride and groom are brought to tears in a wedding ceremony is when they say their vows. And you know what their vows are? They're a list of relational requirements. But there's something beautiful about it because they're more than just rules. If they were just rules, there would be nothing beautiful about it. If they just treated them like, if they treated them just as rules, it wouldn't be beautiful. If they just stood up there and said, okay, um, uh, okay, if things get better today, we're, we're gonna stay together. After today, we're gonna stay together. What if things get what if things get a lot worse after today? You can't leave if things get a lot worse. Um, okay, well, what if we get richer? Can't leave. What if we go absolutely broke? You can't leave. Um, what if I get really, really, really sick? Can't leave. What if I die? Okay, that changes things. Um, <laughs> but you know, like if they just did that, like just, okay, let's, what are the rules? What do, we, what do we have to follow? Nobody would think it's beautiful, but people see, see the beauty in it. Vows are beautiful because they speak to love and commitment, trust, risk and trust, dependence on a power greater than themselves. They're gonna need God to fulfill those vows. Vows are the foundation of a beautiful relationship, and that's what's happening here with God and Israel. Because remember where they are last week, Exodus 19 uh, says this. Now, this is God speaking to, uh, through Moses to his people. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
God was saying to them, you're going to be my representatives in the world. Israel, you're going to represent me to the world. That's the kind of relationship we're going to have. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, and you're going to represent me to the world. But the reality is God gets to define what it means to represent him. There's, there's definition to that. If we're going to represent him, we got to know what it looks like to represent him. Those are the relational requirements. And so... God defines that. That's what he's doing here. He's showing Israel what it looks like to represent him. And he's going to spend the next four chapters giving a picture of this through laws, how they are to live as his representatives. And he starts here with what we call the Ten Commandments. The Bible actually calls it the Ten, the ten Words or the Ten Statements. We call it the Ten Commandments. But notice, even in this, he doesn't begin with a command. So Exodus 20, our, our text today, Exodus 20, we'll start in verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he's, he stopped there, and God, God doesn't begin with a command. He begins by reminding them of who he is and what he's already done. But remember, I'm, the, I'm your God. I'm Yahweh. I'm your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. I saved you. Um, he's already saved them. So Mark pointed this out last week, that our holiness is something that's given to us by God. We don't prove ourselves holy, and then he saves us. God, Israel didn't have anything to prove to, um, to God. He could have given them the Ten Commandments while they were in Egypt. He, he could have done that back during the plagues. He could have said, by the way, this is how you're going to live, and given them the Ten Commandments. He could have given the Ten Commandments to Israel and to all of Egypt and said, hey, everybody, live this way. These are the rules. Everybody live this way. And if you do it, I'll save you. But he didn't do that. Instead, God does what he always does. He's saved by his grace. He saved them by his grace. So he saved the people of Israel. He called them out of, out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, and he's taking them to his promised land. And on the way there, they stop. And he says, okay, well, now that I've saved you, I'm your God. I've done this. The relationship is established. You're going to represent me. And so now you're going to live a certain way. The same is true for us. Jesus doesn't call us to live a certain way so that we'll be worthy of being saved by him. Instead, he saves us by his grace and mercy, and then he shows us how to live. God has relational requirements. You can say what you want, but... Um, he has relational requirements, and this is, we're, we're just going to look at three things that come out of our text today that will help us understand maybe, maybe what, the, um, what the Ten Commandments are and how we're supposed to respond to them. And the first is this, that faith surrenders to God's way. Faith surrenders to God's way. God has relational requirements. He has a way of life, a way of living, and he's calling us to it. And we are to respond to surrendering to his way. We're to give up our way. That's what Israel had to do first was go, okay, God, we're not going to try and do it our way. We're not going to try and save ourselves. We're not going to try and do it our way. We're going to surrender to your way. And so when he said it's time to go, they went. And when they got to the, to the Red Sea, and they were trapped, and he said, I'm going to part the waters, walk, to, walk into the water. They, they walked in. They went his way. That's, that's where it begins. You've got to surrender to God's way. If you've never surrendered to his way, then you haven't entered into the relationship. If you haven't entered into the relationship, then what do his relational requirements matter to you? You know, I mean, this is, this is for the people who, who are in relationship with God. So step into that, surrender to his way, and then God shows the way to live. And he gives these 10 commandments, and they might seem straightforward at first, but actually, 
they're kind of vague. We're going to look at them, and, and they're kind of vague, and that's why they've been argued about for centuries. In fact, people don't even agree on what the Ten Commandments are. If you read it, you could say, well, there's maybe 11 or 12 or 13 commandments here, depending on how you number them. Um, people go, well, what's the, what's the second commandment? Uh, some people don't agree on what the first commandment is, actually, even here. It seems like a straightforward list, but it's not as obvious as you might think. Um, most Jewish interpreters took the first part, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of, of, of Egypt, as number one, because it's the 10 statements, it's the 10 sayings. Not Ten Commandments, actually. And so they take that as number one. We take what, what's in verse three as number one. Look there. Um, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. That seems pretty clear. Except even people aren't totally sure what means by before me. What does he mean by before me? Like you shouldn't put them, you shouldn't rank them ahead of me. It actually literally means you shouldn't have them in front of me. Um, so does that mean setting an idol in front of me? We, we don't know exactly, but it's pretty clear, at least this, God means... I'm your God. It's what he said in, in the first verse. He said, I am Yahweh, your God. So we know he's saying, I'm your God. Any other gods out there, they're not your gods. I'm your gods. So you don't, you don't have those before me. I'm number one. I'm your God. Uh, then he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am, your jealous God, am a jealous God. Now, um, some people go, well, this is the second commandment. Other people go, no, no, that's, that's the second part of the first commandment. Um, either way, he says, don't make a carved image for yourself, um, which makes sense. Don't make an idol. Don't make a carved image or likeness of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath. Or in the... the problem is, in understanding this, is in just a few chapters... God's going to say, make a tabernacle. And everything in the tabernacle is like garden-themed. There's a garden theme in the tabernacle. And so he says, make a, make a, can, a lampstand, a candle holder, and make it with branches and with leaves and with flowers. He's telling them to make a carved image of things that are on the earth. And then he says, you're gonna make an ark, the ark of the covenant. And on top of it, there's gonna be guardians, these cherubim, these spiritual beings that are, that you're gonna have those on top of there. It's an image of these spiritual beings that are in the heavens above. So that can't be it. It can't be just don't make an image of things, but he says, don't bow down and worship them. Okay, don't bow down, that, bow to them or serve them. So Whatever he's saying, he's for sure saying, don't make an idol that you're then gonna bow down to and worship. We know that. He must be saying that. Um, then he says, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We go, okay, I know what that means. It means if you miss a shot in basketball, don't curse. You know, I mean, that's, that's what don't take the Lord's name in vain means. But I think it means more than that. The Israelites didn't play basketball. Um, and, and the word to take his name, doesn't, it doesn't mean to speak his name. It actually means to pick up his name, to bear his name. Don't take on the name of Yahweh. Don't pick it up in vain. Don't pick it up meaninglessly. So it means more. Certainly it means don't treat his name lightly and throw it around like a curse word or something. Don't do that, of course, but more than that, 
Don't, don't take it on. Um, don't take on his name if you don't mean it. I would say to, to, for, for someone to say, oh, I, I, I'm a follower of God. I'm a follower of Jesus so that it will get them some advantage either with God or with people, but they don't actually follow him or mean it. I would say that's taking God's name in vain. It's, it's taking it on when you don't mean it. But you see, it's kind of vague. We have to interpret that. People have been trying to figure that out for centuries. Then he says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. He gives specific instructions about who is not to work on, on the Sabbath. You aren't supposed to, your servants, your animals aren't supposed to work on that day. And that seems pretty clear, but what constitutes work? If you've read the New Testament, you know this is an argument all the time. Well, what counts as work? How far can you walk on the Sabbath? It seems that God isn't interested in getting into the nitty-gritty of all these laws. It seems here that he's interested in the broader idea of God rested at the end of his creation. You can rest, and when you rest, you're trusting in God's provision. There's a broader idea there, but it's a little hard to figure out. Here's the question. Is God just doing this to be annoying? If, if he has requirements, lay it out. Spell it out for me. Tell us what we need to do to make you happy. You know? But here's the thing about relational requirements, about the Ten Commandments. These are not just what we are to do, but they're a way of life that reflects God's character. And a way of life you can't spell out in a bunch of little rules. A way of life is like, it's broader than that, you know? A way of life is full of ideas and images and thoughts and beliefs, but a way of life isn't a list of steps. You know, sure, there's steps involved and, there, and there's rules involved, but it's more than that. But why would God do it that way? Why would God be vague as he does this? I would just say, have you ever tried to get a six-year-old to eat something other than the thing they most want to eat? My six-year-old always thinks whatever is the thing he wants most, whether it's mac and cheese or ice cream, um, whatever he wants most, that's the only thing he's interested in eating. And everything else, it's kind of a fight to get him to eat. And so you say, okay, eat your dinner. And he says, how many bites? <laughs> and you say, just eat your dinner. Okay, how many bites? Because he wants you to spell it out. Because he wants to do just, okay, fine. I'll follow the rules. I'll eat the number of bites that will get me to what I want, either away from the table or to dessert or whatever that is, right? Just spell it out for me. Give me the rules, and then I can do it. But we're interested in something broader than that. As his parents, we're like, no. Um, at this time of day, we eat a meal. Someone made food for you. They served it to you. The right thing to do is to eat it. You need nutrients if you're gonna grow. You know what I'm talking about? Nutrients. Um, you, you, you gotta have that stuff in your body so you can't just, it's not about the number of bites. You gotta be able to learn to be a person who will actually eat a meal, you know? Um, there's something broader than that. So God is doing the same thing. He's, he's, giving, he's giving a way of living. Yes, it's guidelines, it's wisdom, it's rules, it's laws, but it's bigger than that because it reveals God's character. And so, but there's still things we need to do. There's still very important good things to do. He goes on, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. Hey, you guys gotta obey, you gotta honor your parents. You're going into this promised land. If you're a society of people, that, of children who don't care anything about their parents, forget what they believe, forget what they do, it's not gonna go well for you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
shall not cover your neighbor's, neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's interesting. Some of these, like, oh, if somebody murders, well, you can tell if they murdered. If they coveted, how do you know if they coveted? These aren't things, they aren't just like rules that like, hey, go around and enforce these rules because the coveting ones, how's anybody even gonna know? That's an internal thing. God's showing them a way of life, but they're, but they're good. They're God's wisdom. God is, they show God's character. God is good and he's wise. He knows the best way for them to live in the land that he's giving them. He knows the best way for us to live in the universe that he's created. He shows us that way. And so we should follow in his, way, in his way. We should surrender to his way as we represent God. But here's the second thing. Surrender is defined by obedience. Surrender is defined by obedience. It's not like, okay, God has shown us the way to live, and yeah, it's general, it's broad, and so we kind of figure out, eh, yeah, this seems like a good idea. This doesn't seem like a good idea. I'll surrender to his way, but am I really gonna go his way? To surrender to his way is to obey him. Obedience is not a popular word with Anyone I know, my six-year-old <laughs> uh, or a 40-year-old, obedience, eh, you know, that sounds, like, that sounds like giving up a lot of control. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. That's why we call it surrender. When we surrender to God's way, we actually go his way. Look at the end of this passage, verse uh, 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're afraid. They want to stay away from God when they hear this and they see this. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So there's a whole sermon just in, in that passage. It's kind of strange um, they're afraid of God, and Moses says, don't be afraid, fear God. Uh, it's a paradox, but it seems like he's saying, look, God has come near to you. He's here with you. He's gonna show you what he's like. These laws show you what he's like. The flash of lightning shows you what he's like, he's, his power, so that you'll know, oh, this is somebody I better follow, so that you'll have this this understanding that this is for real, this is serious, this isn't just a nice idea. There's something on the line here. I don't want to get crossways with this God. And so, so that, he says, that, your fear, you may, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. God's desire is that they would obey him, not sin, not miss the mark that he's, that he's shown them, not step off the way that he's given them, but instead they would obey him. And so for us, if surrender means obedience then a very important question we should be asking ourselves is, if we represent God today, that's what we talked about last week, 1 Peter chapter two, we, you aren't a people, now you're a people, we're God's people, a nation of priests, a, a, a royal priest, a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that's who we're called to be to represent God, and if that's true, we need to embrace his relational requirements, and so we should be asking the question, what does it mean for us to obey God? How do we obey these commandments? And actually, in Live It Out this week, you'll read on through, on, on Friday, you'll read through, um, through, through the next few chapters, and you'll see there's all these laws, and you'll go, wait a second, I'm not an Israelite. Am I supposed to be following all of these laws? Some of them you'll go, wait a second, I never heard this before, and I definitely don't do it this way. We're not the Israelites, so, so what does it look like for us to obey these things? 
Well, here's the big thing you need to know. You gotta know what Jesus taught. You've got to know what Jesus taught. You've got to take his words, what he taught, what his disciples taught, what we see in the New Testament. You've got to take those things into you. We don't leave the Old Testament behind. That's not it. But Jesus did a beautiful thing for us. I mean, he came and he healed. He died on a cross, but he also taught. And most of the time when he taught, he was teaching from the Old Testament. The New Te other New Testament authors, they, they refer to the Old Testament all the time. They shine a light. They help us understand how we um, read and obey even these laws that are in the Old Testament. So you know Jesus um, famously taught the Sermon on the Mount. He was teaching from the Old Testament. He said things like this. Uh, he was teaching from the Ten Commandments. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, don't even have contempt for someone. That's what Jesus was teaching. He's like, you don't even, you don't even tell, be like, that guy's an idiot. I hate that guy. That guy's an idiot. You don't hold that kind of hatred in your heart. He called, he called them, he called us to a higher standard than just uh, the Ten Commandments. There was, something, there was something more behind do not murder. It's like, don't, don't hate people. Don't have this kind of um, hatred for them in your heart. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. It's in there. It's one of the commandments. But I'm telling you, don't even cultivate lust in your heart. Like even if all it, if it just stays in your heart, but you're just you're looking at somebody and, and and you view them as an object for your satisfaction, you're you're not you're not loving that person. You're hating that person. You're you're treating them as less than human. Don't do that. That's what the adultery thing is about. It's not just about don't sleep around. That's going to mess up society, but it's also going to mess up your heart and mess up their life if you view them that way. God called them, called us to a higher standard. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul taught on the Old Testament, on the commands. Um, Romans 13, I'll put it up on the screen. Romans 13, verse 8. Paul writes, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. We just read those. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. And that's the same way that Jesus summed up the law. The most important commandment, they asked him. Love, love God completely. That's the Shema. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love him completely and love others sacrificially. That's the way we're meant to live. And so that means things like, yeah, oh, a serve Saturday's coming up. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna serve sacrificially. I'm gonna love others. I'm gonna put their interests ahead of my own and I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna serve. But I'm not just gonna do it on serve Saturday. I'm gonna look for ways to do that in my everyday life. An opportunity to go to Mexico City, to Guatemala, to down to South Florida um, and, and respond to things that are going on in those places. Those are ways that we serve others and we love others. Those kinds of things are fulfilling the law if they're done in love. Love is putting, love is willing the good of someone else. Even if it means it's not good for you. Even if it's, even if it's worse for you, that's self-sacrificial love. Love is not being nice to people. I mean, be nice to people, yeah, but it's more than that. Somebody reminded me this week, I thought this, this was really helpful, helpful to me. Remember when this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, hey, hey, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, follow the commands. He's like, surrender to my way, you know? <laughs> surrender to my way, go my way, follow the commands. He says, I've done all that, I follow the, I follow the, the 10 commandments, I do that, well, but what else do I need to do? 
And he says, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And he went away sad because he had a lot of money. Jesus was loving that man. He was loving him by showing him the way to go. He's like, listen, you think what you have is the best you can have, money. But there's something better than that. There's actually something better. Just get, forget the money. That's getting in the way. Get rid of that and store up treasure in heaven. That's where the real value is. And the, those loving words of Jesus made him sad. So loving others doesn't mean just doing whatever will make them happy. Um, God's love for you doesn't mean he wants you to do whatever makes you happy. No, instead, he says, I'm going to show you the way. Go my way. When we go his way, that's the best way for us to live. When we show others his way, that's the best way for them to live. And so when we live out others, we're, we're fulfilling the commands that God has called us to do, his relational requirements. When we love others, we're fulfilling, we're embracing God's relational requirements. But here's the thing, loving others sacrificially, self-sacrificial love is dangerous. It, it should feel dangerous. Um, obedience should feel dangerous. Like, the, like there's a reason we don't like the word obedience. It's because it feels dangerous and it feels dangerous because it is dangerous. It's, it's dangerous to go, I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna do what's best for me, God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you more than me. I'm gonna love others more than I love myself. That feels dangerous because it is, because obedience is commitment. Like, obedience is committing to it. If you're gonna obey, it's like, I I'm going for it. Like, uh, how many of you have seen that movie, um, Free Solo? It's a documentary. Free Solo, Alex Honnold, the guy who climbs up 3,000 foot granite face of El Capitan in, El, in Yosemite National Park, and he does it without a rope tied to him. He just walks up to the cliff and climbs up it, just with nothing, just climbs up at 3,000 feet. If you've all had any time, instant death. That's, well, a few seconds and then death. That's, that's what he's doing. Okay, some of you have seen it. How many of you have seen it and then went out and tried what he tried? None of you, okay, good call, because he doesn't have a rope, and he knows that what he's doing He's got to commit to it. There's this spot on it. It's the crux of the climb, and he gets up there, and it's like the only way to do it. It's like this 90-degree corner in the, in the rock, and you can't climb through it. You have to go across it. And so he calls it like this karate kick move, but basically what he has to do is put his foot out and lean across till it hits on the other side. He, he can't test it first. He can't wait and see, is this secure? Am I going to land all right on the other side? He just has to commit that's the only way to do it. That's, what, that's the kind of obedience call, God calls us to. It's dangerous obedience. He calls us to go, well, you don't know what's gonna happen on the other side. Like what, what, if, uh, like, what if there's not somebody there to catch you? What if you don't put your needs first, you put somebody else's needs first in love, and you get to the other side, and it's not good for you? That's, that's the kind of commitment God calls us to in obedience, and it's dangerous. But here's, our, here's my third and last point. Obedience is safe in what I'm gonna call a night and day relationship. Obedience is actually safe in a night and day relationship. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, look where that Romans passage continues. Romans 13, verse 11. So Jesus, God, Paul has just said, 
Um, love is fulfilling the law. So love others. Then he says, besides this, you know, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul says, look, it's a new day. There's a new day that's come. We're not in the dark anymore. We're living in the light. So let's live like we're in the light. And obedience is safe in this day. In this light that we're in a, in a night to day, a night and day kind of relationship, obedience is safe because we're living in God's kingdom. This is the same kind of language. I don't know if you, you know, pastors, we've got to preach on this stuff. We pay real close attention to the little words and everything. When Jesus, back when we did Mark, when we were in the book of Mark back in May or whenever that was, do you remember um, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Paul says, you know the time, the hour has come, the day is at hand. He's talking about the reality that God's kingdom has come, that life in God's kingdom is available to all of us now. We are not the Israelites. I mean, yes, we are the, heir, we are the heirs of Abraham. Everything that God promised to Abraham is a promise to us, but we're not the Israelites. We're living in a new covenant. They lived into the old covenant, but we live in a new covenant, one where Jesus has taken care of everything. Our inability to keep the law, he's taken care of it. We're living in this new day, and so what we should do is wake up. What do you do in the morning when the day dawns? You get up, you put on your shoes, you put on your clothes, and you go get to work in the day. And that's what he says we're supposed to do as his representatives. He says, make no provision for the flesh. He's, he lists all these things that are the things that the Greeks would be doing in the middle of the night. He's like, look, that stuff, put it behind you. But more than that, he throws in things like quarreling, jealousy, sexual immorality. He's like, look, sexual immorality is not loving. <laughs> He's like, obey me. Love others, and if you want to love others, you got to leave this stuff behind. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on every morning, and then walk out into the day. And obedience in that daylight is safe because he's with you in every moment. His spirit is with you in every moment. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. You don't have to look out for yourself as number one. You can, you can look to the needs of others. You can love others. Obedience is safe in that kind of relationship. Romans 8, uh, verses 3 and 4 says this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God knew that the Israelites couldn't keep the law. He even told Moses that. We'll get, you get to that later on in the story. Moses even, Moses knows, I'm giving you these laws and I know you won't keep them and there's gonna be consequences for that. God knew that, but Romans 8 tells us, God, God has done what the law couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement, the relational requirements that God has called us to, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
That's how it works. Like, Israel was not saved by the law. They were saved just like us, by grace. But they, the way they related to God was through the law. He's like, this is, this is the way um, this is the way that we're gonna that we're gonna relate to each other. That's the old covenant. I'm gonna give you this law. You keep the laws, okay? And they couldn't do it. God knew they couldn't do it, and so He sent Jesus. And Jesus came, and Jesus kept the law perfectly. And Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for the sins, past, present, and future, ours and theirs. He took care of all that. He met those so that the requirements of the law could be met in us, because we don't walk according to the flesh, unlike the Israelites who had the Spirit of God before them. In a, in a pillar of fire. They knew the spirit of God resided in the tabernacle and then in the temple, and they could go and they could worship him there. But unlike them, we live under a new covenant. Jesus said at, at the Last Supper, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new way of relating to God. Instead of relating to him through his commands, we relate to him through his blood, through the blood of Jesus. By, and, and because Jesus died, because he's alive today, he sent his spirit, so his spirit lives in each one of his people. That's how we relate to God now. Our relationship is based on Jesus, who is alive, and his spirit is in us. And so we are free to, to, to follow in his way. We're free to obey him and go his way, not so that he'll love us more, but because he's inside of us and he's pushing us where he wants us to go. Now listen, we can, choose, we can still choose to disobey, but we can also obey him. I heard somebody say once, you won't always do the right thing. You won't always obey God, but you can always obey him. We're no longer slaves to sin. His spirit is in us, prompting us, pushing us to go his way so we can walk in obedience to him. And when we don't, because we won't always do it, when we don't, the penalty is paid, we're right with him, we have nothing to fear, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, and so we just go, God, I wanna go your way, I wanna obey you. Well, you didn't obey me, okay, come back. Let's do it again. I'll show you the way to go. His spirit is in us, telling us, you're, hey, you're my child. You're my child. I'm gonna show you the way to go. And so we keep going back to him. That's the life of obedience we live. So we keep loving others. We keep following God. We keep surrendering to him and obeying him and following in his way. And when we get it wrong, we keep turning back to him in repentance. That's the life of a person who has embraced God's relational requirements. He's calling us to do that. We surrender to his way and obey him. It's part of being in a relationship with him. He's with us all along the way. So we wanna put that into practice. What are some next steps we can do? One is this, just ask God, where do I need to embrace my, my relationship with you on your terms? Where do I need to embrace my relationship with you on your terms? Where am I trying, like we all have those places. Where am I trying to do this my way and I need to do it your way, because I represent you, we represent you, and we gotta do it your way if we're gonna do that. That'll be in the Live It Out this week, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, whenever you do it, you get started and live it out. That'll be that question there to prompt you there. And then keep doing that, keep going through it. You know, I said we gotta have the words of Jesus, we gotta have the words of scripture in us. That's, a, that's one of the reasons we do Live It Out, is to get us in scripture every day. Um, but also to engage with God by his spirit. So God, help me understand what this word means, what I'm supposed to do with it. 
Live it out as a guide to help you do that. So do that each day and then talk with other people about it. Engage in conversation about it and then step out in love. That's what, what we want to do. At the, at the start of this passage, you remember, before all the commands, God starts by telling Israel who he is and what he's done for them. That's what we need to do. Every day we gotta remember who he is and what he's done for us. We gotta remember that every day. When we remember that, doesn't that change the way it is to obey him? When you realize who he is and what he's done, you gotta do the things that stir that up in you. One of the things that does that, of course, is when we worship together. We sing the songs of who God is and what he's done for us. That should stir up obedience in us. So that's what we're gonna do. All of, our, all of our venues, that's what we're gonna do together. We're gonna take some time and we're gonna respond to God before we go out into the rest of our week. So would you stand, wherever you are, just stand up and I'm gonna pray for us before we respond in worship. God, we're grateful that you have given us your word and that your word includes commands, guidance, wisdom, God. We need your wisdom, um, God, allow us to see that as more than just a list of rules. God, help us to see it's your goodness. It's your mercy showing us the best way to live. God, help us to understand the kind of life you've called us to do as your representatives. Help us see how good you are and all that you've done for us so we'll, we'll respond in obedience to your perfect, beautiful way for the sake of those around us, in love, uh, loving them, but God, above all, loving you. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.